Um, our reading for this morning comes from Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 12. These are the statutes and, the rule, and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on, on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom we shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you, that, so that you live in safe, safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings, that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are grateful for your presence. We are grateful that you are here and that you have something for us. And so we ask that the words of my mouth, and the meditations, the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would be faithful to your promises to be present with us, to give us each what we need, to meet us where we are, and in our worship, continue to transform us into the kinds of people uh, that leave your presence with your love, to extend it to our friends and neighbors for their good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really good to be back in town and to be with you all this morning. As Kathy and I talked through our travel plans, uh, we agreed on this, that we wanted to be back and we wanted... Uh, to be here and to be worshiping with you. It's been uh, long and hard, but a good and a beautiful week for us. Uh, most of you know, many of you know, I mentioned it last week, that my uncle passed away unexpectedly last Saturday. And uh, I'm part of a very large, uh, very tight-knit, uh, very boisterous extended family. And so... Uh, I wanted to be with my family during this time, and uh, you have all been so gracious uh, to say, go, and how can we help? Uh, so grateful to God and grateful to you for the opportunity uh, to go and to worship 
with friends and family, albeit uh, at a memorial service. My Uncle Ted was a pastor, and he preached a sermon not too many days ago. It's been recorded, the strangest thing. It's his last sermon, and he began his sermon by saying, my family does death weird, but my family does death well. And it is true, my family does death weird, uh, but I think my family does death well because my family knows Jesus. And if you know Jesus, if you are united to the one who has defeated death, then you're playing with house money. And so death can be hard, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, Death can be the vandal that it is, robbing us of those we love for now. Uh, But death is the enemy that has been vanquished. And when that's true, and when you have confidence in that, then you can do death weird. Because death doesn't have to lead to despondence and despair. Um, My family does death well, and so it was good to be with them. I took a flight on, it all runs together now, Thursday morning, uh, flew into Atlanta, my cousin picked me up, drove to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my uncle uh, had pastored for the past three years or so of his life, and I got to experience a worship service there with his Chattanooga friends and family. We were remembering Ted, but we were doing so as an act of worship to the God uh, who gifted him to us. And there was an after party, and it was an act of worship as a family coming together uh, in light of the reality that Ted is with Jesus and enjoying storytelling, uh, grieving together, but laughing together as well. And then we all got in cars on Friday morning, we drove down to Ocala, Florida, where my uncle pastored for 25 years. My first job in ministry was at his church uh, with those people. And so we got to be together, and we had a pre-worship party with friends and family and told stories and laughed uh, and cried a little bit, but mostly laughed. And then we had a worship service on Saturday morning. And so my week has been filled with worship, a different kind of worship, not the kind of worship that you want to do every day or very often, but worship nonetheless, the worship of the God who has defeated death and gives us the ability to go to a funeral and to grieve, but not as those without hope. And if you have hope, then grief takes on an entirely different character. Worship takes on an entirely different character. Uh, We've been preaching through Deuteronomy, and we come to Deuteronomy chapter 12, and lo and behold, it's a chapter that's all about worship. And so what I'd love to do with you uh, for a few moments this morning is just have some moments of reflection on worship, both in Deuteronomy 12, but also personally as I reflect on my experience of the past few days. Worship in Deuteronomy, worship in the entire Scriptures, is both God-glorifying, that's what we do when we come together in worship, we come together to give God the glory that He is due as the name above all names. But not only is it God glorifying, it is also nation attracting. 
It's nation attracting. In other words, the worship that we do when we gather together is part of God's mission to reach the nations with His love and with His presence. I don't know if you think of worship that way. I don't always think of worship that way. But that's the way that Deuteronomy 12 presents worship. Worship for ancient Israel was a public, raucous affair. Right? As you look at the descriptions here in verses 5 and 6, and then it repeats itself again. You look at a worship in which people are coming from towns to a particular place, and they're bringing offerings, and they're bringing tithes. And the way that it would work is they would take those offerings and they would sacrifice them, but then they would have a party. They would have a feast with those offerings. And they would eat and they would enjoy themselves. And it was very public. And part of the reason why it was public was so that the nations who were watching would see and ask the question, who is this God that elicits this kind of worship? from these kinds of people, I'm seeing this worship, and I'm intrigued, and I want to know more. This happens all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the Apostle Paul, to his letter in 1 Corinthians, describes the kind of worship that they can engage in together. And he says, when you worship, you're going to worship and assume that your Roman and Greek neighbors are going to be there. They're going to come in. They're going to be intrigued at what you're doing. And when they see your worship, this is what they'll say. Surely God is among you. Surely God is among you. And the implication is, and I want a piece of what you have. That the nations, those who don't know the love of this covenantal God, would overhear and oversee a group of people worshiping. And it would be such a compelling experience that they would say, that's what I want. Could you tell me more? So, with that in mind, five characteristics of God-glorifying nation-gathering worship. Some reflections we can do together. Five characteristics of God-glorifying and nation-gathering worship. Now let me say one more preface. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a member or regular attender of Grace and Peace, I would love for you to be asking yourself, what would it take for my worship? And what would it take for our worship to be the kind of worship that if my neighbor was sitting next to me, they would say, I want a piece of what you've got. Right? And if you're sitting here, if you're that neighbor... If somebody's invited you to Christian worship, I would love for you to ask the question, what kind of God could I give my life to? What kind of expression would my life need to be responding to that kind of God that would be so compelling that I would say, yes, I want a piece of what these people have sitting around me. The first characteristic of this kind of compelling, God-honoring worship is that it's exclusive. It's exclusive. Did you catch that? In chapter 12, verse 5, Moses says to Israel, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put His name 
and to make his habitation there, and there you shall go. Right? He began the passage by saying, you're going to come into a land and there's going to be all sorts of altars set up because there are people who live in this land and they have their gods. And they're on the high hills. And they're on the mountains. And they're under the great trees. And here's what you need to do. You need to go and find those altars to those gods. And you need to destroy them. You need to get them out of your land. And then here's what you need to do. You need to go to the place of worship that I tell you to go for this reason. My name will be there and my habitation will be there. Moses says this six times in chapter 12, 20 something times in Deuteronomy. Go to the place I tell you and worship me there. And he's not as much saying, hey, there's going to be one place and not all these other places. What he's saying is there's one God who's worthy of worship and no other God. Go to where my name is and where my presence will dwell. And that's where you worship because that's where I am. And I'm the only God. That's what Yahweh is saying to Israel. That's what Jesus says to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way that you come to the Father and worship is through me. It's an exclusive activity, worshiping Yahweh. I don't know that this is the characteristic of worship that I would start with if I'm God and I'm trying to express the kind of worship that Austin would respond to in 2019. Hey, Austin, you should come and worship the God of the Scriptures, Jesus of the Bible, because He's an exclusive God and He's not going to let you do anything other than what He tells you to do in worship. Sign me up. That sounds great. right? No, that's not the cultural moment that we live in. We, We live in a cultural moment in which we're encouraged to choose our own worship and the object of our own worship and express ourselves and our religious affections the way that we feel like they ought to be expressed. And here God is saying, no, I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And I'm going to tell you, you worship me. We also live in a city that is filled with worshipers. We're all worshipers. Your neighbors are worshipers. Your friends and your co-workers are worshipers. And they're worshiping other gods than the God of the Scriptures, some of them. And you know what? You're probably saying to yourself, Some of my friends and neighbors who worship other gods than this God are a whole lot better people than some of my Christian friends. In fact, some of them are a whole lot better people than I am. And so who am I to say that there's one God for them to worship and no other God? And I hear that, and I feel that, and I understand that. And there are things that we could say about that. One thing we could say is God doesn't pick his people because they're the best kind of people. Right? The worshipers of Yahweh, the worshipers of Jesus, are those who have recognized that they need Jesus. That they're not the prettiest, and they're not the smartest, and they're not even the most moral. But God loves them anyway. Right? We could talk about the fact that every claim of religious nature or of any kind of ultimate meaning is going to be an exclusive claim. Even the claim 
that there are many ways to one God is an exclusive claim, and we could talk about those things. But here's what I want to say this morning when we're faced with God's invitation to worship Jesus and worship Him alone. When you're at a worship service in which a friend or a loved one has died, the question you're not asking is, is it fair that Jesus is asking me to worship Him alone? The question you're asking is, is He true? You're not asking, is this fair? You're asking, is it true? Jesus offers himself to us as the only God because he believes that that is the truth. And if it's the truth, then the response is wholehearted, full-lifed worship. Because why would you want to do anything else? If God is who he claims to be, he is the God who has defeated death in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and brought resurrection life for all of us. And if that's true, it's far from an oppressive exclusivity. It's actually the most inclusive and the most expansive opportunity of worship we could possibly, possibly have. We talked about Moses commanding the Israelites to go to the altars of the other gods and smash them and trash them and destroy them. Why? Because he knows that there's only one God worth giving our life to. And all these other gods are images. They're stones. They're pieces of wood. And ultimately, they can do nothing for us but demand more and more and give less and less. And so in kindness, God is saying, get rid of them and worship me because I'm the God who has delivered you from Egypt. I'm the God who has brought you into this good land. I'm the God who is going to give you every good thing. In Jesus, he says, I am the God who will defeat death on your behalf and is going to make all things new including you, including your city, everything. And if that's true, why wouldn't we give our all back to Him? It's the most inclusive offer of worship possible because there is no condition. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the brightest. God wants everyone all of us, to come to Him and receive His grace and receive His goodness. Right? His offer to worship Him is in the words of Ted, my uncle, an offer for all the broken little people. It was one of Ted's favorite phrases. Broken little people. He didn't mean that pejoratively. He meant it with great affection because he knew himself to be a broken little person. And his point was this. Jesus has come for all of us, for those of us who recognize deep down we are a mess and we are a wreck and we are adrift without a Savior. We need an object of worship 
who can give to us what we can't get for ourselves. And that is Jesus. And He's done it. So, is it true? Is Jesus who He claims to be? If He is, then sign me up. It's not an oppressive exclusivity. It's a glorious inclusivity. Some of you might be asking, you keep talking about Jesus, but I don't see Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And you're right. Yahweh is the God of Deuteronomy chapter 12. But every story of the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus tells us that himself in Luke chapter 24, and this one is no exception. And so how do we get there? Again, look at verse 5. This is where we're primarily camping out in our thoughts this morning. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and to make His habitation. To put His name and to make His habitation. And those two words are launching words. They catapult us straight to Jesus. Right? Yahweh is going to put His name there, and that is where you will worship. Does that sound familiar? Name above all names? Right? Philippians chapter 2, we read this a few weeks ago. We'll read it again. Speaking of Jesus, therefore God has exalted Him above and bestowed on Him the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is where God has placed His name. The name above all names. He's the object of worship. He's the fulfillment of this invitation that is made in Deuteronomy chapter 12 to worship the One who is worthy and to worship in a way that would be compelling to our friends and neighbors. He's the name above all names. He is the place of God's own habitation. Right? God's own dwelling. Does that sound familiar? John's Gospel, chapter, tw- chapter 1. Jesus came and He made His dwelling among us. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's presence with His people. And He is the fulfillment of this passage. Friends, the first characteristic of worship that is both God-honoring but also compellingly inviting to your friends and neighbors is that it's exclusive. It's focused upon Jesus and Jesus alone. Richard Pratt was one of my seminary professors. He preached the homily at the second memorial service for Ted. He drew our attention to Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Give yourself to Him and Him alone in worship and all these things will be added unto you. It's not a restricting worship. It's an expansive worship. What Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6 is that He has come to make all things new. He will not fail. 
and he's offering us a piece of the action. And when we take a piece of that action, all these things will be added unto you. The kind of life that you long to live, you live as you worship the one true object of worship, Jesus himself. Uh, There were about 400 people at the first worship service and 600 people at the second worship service. And it was so humbling to sit there and to ask, would this many people come to a memorial for me because I lived an impactful life for them? And story after story after story was told of Ted being an impactful presence for other people because he loved Jesus and gave his life to Jesus. Ted was the kind of person he wanted to be because he was a worshiper of Jesus and for no other reason. It's an exclusive offer, but it's a gloriously inclusive, a gloriously expansive offer of worship as well. I know you're thinking right now, you said five, right? And we just did one. We're going to go quick. The last four are going to roll. The second aspect of worship that is both God-honoring and inviting to our friends and neighbors here in Austin is worship that is authentic and humble. Worship that is authentic and humble. And when you look at the description of worship in verses 6 and following, you see first that they bring their offerings... They bring their sacrifices. And that was the way that God had given His ancient people to come into His presence. It was a way to recognize, I don't belong here and yet I can be here because God has given a mechanism, an offering, a sacrifice of another so that I can be right in God's presence. It was a way to come into God's presence and say, I'm worshiping you because I need you. It was a very humble act to bring a sacrifice. Friends, Jesus is our sacrifice. And yet we come into worship with that same humility. None of us have it all together. It would be a great tagline for our congregation. We come into worship together because none of us have it all together. And that's okay because God has it together. And everything I need He gifts to me. I'm dependent on Him, and that's just fine with me. Grace and peace, friends. What would it be like if we were the kind of worshiping community that lived that out day to day, week to week, with an authentic, genuine humility? None of us have it all together. We're not walking into this room trying to put on a show of what we think somebody else thinks our best self should be in worship. No, we come into this room as our very selves, humble, saying, I need Jesus today. Man, do I ever need Jesus today. I'm so glad He's here. I'm so glad I get to worship Him. None of us have it all together. Uh, One of the comments that was made of Ted was that uh, Ted was Ted. And 
this person said, you got the same Ted every time he was with you. What if our friends and neighbors knew that every time they came into Grace and Peace's worship, they would get the same congregation? Authentic and humble, recognizing that none of us have it all together, but all of us have been gifted faith and grace and life and Jesus, and we're working it out together. Worship that is God-honoring and attractive to our friends and neighbors is exclusive, it's authentic and humble, uh, it's grateful and generous. Again, I'm going to read chapter verse 6 for us. There, the place of God's presence, you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And he's sort of piling on there. And the sense that you get is that Israel is coming into worship and whatever God asked them to bring, they were going to bring. Because why wouldn't I bring it? He's given me everything. Right? And so the characteristic of worship is that it's grateful worship. And the response of gratitude is open-handed and generous. God, you've given me everything in Jesus. What do you want from me? What do you want from me this morning? You want my hour and a half? It's yours. You want me to serve in the nursery? Done. You want my tithes? Okay. You want me to sing? No, you don't want me to sing. But you want somebody else to sing? Absolutely. We'll do that. Right? Is the culture of our worship men and women and children who are so grateful to be in the presence of the God who has given them everything that they're just looking for ways to give themselves away. That's such a compelling kind of community that we can be for our friends and for our neighbors. Worship that is God-honoring and attractive is exclusive, it's authentic and humble, it's grateful and generous. It's just and it's welcoming. I wish I could say so much more about this. It's just and it's welcoming. I don't know if you caught this, that the invitation into worship for Israel, verse 7, is an invitation to eat and rejoice, you and your household. And then in verse 12, saying the same thing, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your family, and your servants, those who work for you, and the Levite who has no portion in the inheritance. And then Moses continues the thought in chapter 14. He says, your Levites who have no inheritance, and also the widow who has nothing, the orphan who has nothing, and the sojourner who has nothing. In other words, the party of Israel's worship was not just to be for those with power and resources. It was to be for everyone. And those with power and resources were to make a place for everyone else to come into worship. That's both compelling and challenging, isn't it? What would it be if grace and peace was the kind of worshiping community that those with the least resources the least cultural power could come in and say, I belong here. I've received a welcome here. I had a chance to catch up with my brother who does youth outreach work in Scotland, of all places. And I asked him, what do you love about your job, about what you get to do day to day to day? And he said, I love 
making teenagers who feel like nobody's welcome. He said in Scotland, kids and teenagers are completely overlooked. They're a nuisance. They're a distraction at best. And we get to say, Jesus loves you and you belong here. Kids, I don't know if you feel that way. I hope you don't feel that way here. But maybe you have a friend who feels that way. And you could bring them to church, and church would be the place where they know, I belong and I'm welcome. What would it take, grace and peace, friends, for us to be a community of worship and where those with the least feel like they're the richest and the most valued in this space? Finally, we'll end with this. Worship that is God-honoring and compelling to our friends and neighbors is fun. It's just fun. Right? The word in Deuteronomy 12 twice is joyful. And sometimes we talk about joy and we spiritualize all the fun out of it. Joy is more than fun, but it's not less. They were having a good time. They were eating and they were enjoying themselves. Friends, Jesus has defeated death. And when we, when we are united to him, we're playing with house money in this life. And it can be fun. And it should be fun. Knox, my cousin, gave a remembrance of his dad. And he said this. I need to find it to get it right. He said, if you're expecting short and sober at this service, you're in the wrong place. Because we do long and we do laughing. There was a ton of laughing. Not just because Ted was a funny person, but because Christ defeated the grave. And Ted is alive and celebrating, and we're playing with house money until that day. And we ought to have fun together. What would it take for our friends and neighbors to want to be here on Sunday morning because of how much fun we have together worshiping Jesus. Let me end with a story. On the ride from Tennessee to Florida, my mom was giving me the play-by-play of everything that had happened. She'd been there the whole time. And she told a story of a woman who had been invited over and over and over to a women's Bible study at the church that Ted and Mary Lou attended. And she hadn't come yet. Uh, This woman lived in the house next to the lake house uh, where my uncle died. And she happened to be the person who was there uh, to be with my aunt, Mary Lou. And so she was present with Mary Lou from the time of the accident to three hours later when they finally got to the hospital and she handed her off. And I don't know everything that happened in those three hours. But this woman, the next day, went to the friend who had been inviting her to the Bible study with her study guide in hand and said, sign me up because whatever Mary Lou Strawbridge has, I want. A worshiping life that is so compelling to our friends and neighbors, that they would say, whatever grace and peace has, I want.
May the Lord give us that kind of worship together. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be gracious to us and show us, show yourself to us as the truest object of our worship. And as we respond to you, would you give us by your Spirit the ability to be the kind of worshiping community that would be so compelling that more and more of our neighbors on Brentwood and Crestview and in all the places that we live, that our classmates in our elementary schools and our middle schools and our high schools and our universities would get a taste of who you are through our worship, as bizarre as that sounds to us, and would come on in and take their peace. We'll give you the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.